This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And you know, before I move on, I got to say that the Democracy Group is an actual network and the folks at Penn State, they do a great job of putting us together and helping us to collaborate, but it's really an idea. And what I'm learning is that there are folks beyond our formal network that really are working in common cause with the idea of, of what we're trying to do. I, I just want to say that as a preface because our conversation today definitely is in that spirit. Before we move on, please remember to go to Apple Podcasts. I've been saying this for a few weeks. Go to our feed on Apple Podcasts. Scroll a few episodes down to where they let you put a rating and write that review. It makes a world of difference. I can already see that it's making a difference. Why is that important? Because the guys who are at the top of the list are the screamers and the extremists, and they don't need any extra help. But Apple will be forced to take a look at us the more the more reviews that we get. So go ahead and do that. And it helps other sane people who love our democratic republic and to love these more civil conversations discover these shows like this one as as well as the, these conversations as well as beyond politics and more folks can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Matt Robeson. Matt Robeson is a writer, podcast host, and political analyst who focuses on trends in demographics, psychology, policy, and economics that are shaping American politics. His work has been featured extensively in Newsweek, had a great piece just a week ago on in Newsweek. It's been featured in Alternet and Raw Story. He is the co-host of Beyond Politics, as some of this audience already knows, and hopefully a lot of the TPNR audience will learn a lot more about. He's the co-host of that podcast with former Congressman Paul Hodes, broadcast on WKXL in New Hampshire. He spent a decade working on Capitol Hill as a legislative director and chief of staff to three members of Congress, and also worked as a senior advisor, campaign manager, and consultant on several congressional races. In 2012, he ran a come-from-behind race that made national head. I think that was on, over on the uh, Massachusetts side as the biggest surprise win of the election. He went on to work as policy director in the New Hampshire State Senate, successfully helping to coordinate the legislative effort to pass Medicaid expansion. Matt has a bachelor's degree in economics from Swarthmore College. One of our favorite analysts and writers is from Swarthmore as well, Will Salatan, I believe. And he also holds a, holds a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and is married, has kids, has it seems like a really wonderful guy. Although, you know, our sources will be double checking just to make sure <laughs> looks can be deceiving man but hey thank you that is maybe the nicest introduction i've gotten well, certainly in a long time let, let me tell you as a swarthmore person obviously i went to college in pennsylvania and listening to you talk about the democracy group and the penn state tie-in it just triggered for me my one visit my one in-state visit to penn state did you know that they have a research effort at penn state that looks at grass and that focuses on developing better breeds of grass. And they had this small field of grass that was the most pristine grass I've ever seen. Not that kind of grass, like, you know, <laughs> the kind you'd play football on. And yeah. it was so good looking. 
I kind of wanted to lick it. It was just, it was delicious looking. And anyway, I'm sure they also do amazing work on democracy. But when you bring up Penn State, all I can think of is Joe Paterno and grass. There you go. There you go. Yes, it's, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. You know, you have to drive two and a half or so hours from Philly or two and a half hours or so from Pittsburgh. You know, but the, the ride out there, whether you go on I-80 or the Penn Pike, it's actually a really nice ride if, if you don't mind driving a little bit. Uh, I always enjoyed that drive. One of my best friends uh, and his wife met there and uh, went to visit them. Actually spent more time at Penn State than I did at Rutgers, uh, for the record, <laughs> so, where I was supposed to be going to school. So so are you originally from New Hampshire? I am originally from a small island off the coast of North America called Manhattan, and I, I've done like incredible work to try and get rid of my accent. And I've been told that I have a totally neutral accent now. And I ask people, I challenge people to guess where I'm from. And they're, the median guess is Ohio. So I'm reformed. But yeah, I lived in New Hampshire for about six years, part of which when I was working on Capitol Hill, working as a chief of staff, I was flying back and forth. My boss at the time, now my co-host on the podcast on Beyond Politics, was running for the U.S. Senate. New Hampshire is a wonderful state. I was just there again for the primary, you know, kind of like catching up with people and interviewing Chris Matthews on the show, which was kind of cool. And actually, you know, kind of in, in line with the TPNR vibe, we're there interviewing Chris Matthews and politicos are walking through the lobby. This is the Doubletree Hilton in downtown Manchester. This is sort of the hub of the New Hampshire primary. Like everyone is there. The, the, the U.S. senators are giving a press conference in the next door ballroom and like the, the, all the press row is there and Chuck Todd's walking by and et cetera. And a former chairman of the New Hampshire Republican Party, I'm a Democrat, walks through and I, we give each other a wave, we go over and we chat. He was like our chief antagonist. He was, he tormented us when I was the chief of staff for Paul Hodes, I mean, he was brutal on us. And man, do we get along well now. Yeah. And it's just, you know, like it, we were lamenting together that you just don't have that anymore. Like we, we seriously enjoy talking to one another. And that's just, it's a lost thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I hear Chris Sununu speak, especially since he came out in support of Nikki Haley, I appreciate the way he speaks because a lot of times when you're hearing today's version of the Republican Party, especially elected officials speak, there's this tendency to speak of the quote unquote Democrat Party or anyone with a D before their name or anybody, frankly, outside of the more extreme Trumpicized version, uh, Trumpian version of the Republican Party as if it as if they're the enemy. It's not that, you know, I really disagree with his policy on Ukraine. I really disagree with his tax policy, really disagree with this chips bill or this you know, infrastructure. It's not that. Whereas Chris, it's if you hear Elise Stefanik speak, I mean, people who've been convicted of felonies are actually hostages. Whereas, you know, someone who happens to have a D before their name, or there might, maybe there's a rumor that they might've voted for a Democrat once. No, they're the enemy. The way the way Ronald Reagan used to talk about in, you know, Cold War era leaders used to talk about the Soviet Union. Whereas you listen to Chris Sununu and yeah, there's some things that he says that you could take, you know, our politics, you know, he's competing hard. But at the end of the day, you get the sense that he sees his Democratic colleagues as colleagues, as folks that he could ultimately work with. Do, am I, you know, you know that state's politics better than I do, but am I reading that right? I think you're reading that right. And what you just said reminded me of one of the quintessential 
television scenes of the last 20 years, it was in the first season of Mad Men. Did you watch Mad Men? I watched the first few seasons. I got to go back and watch the rest of it, though. Yeah, My wife and I actually bailed on it after the first season, so I, I don't want to push this too far. But there was this famous scene where Don Draper mm. does a presentation. It's for the carousel. He names the, the Kodak slide projector system that goes in a circle, the, the carousel. And what he talks about is if you're trying to persuade people, you know, you can kind of, you can do the hard sell, but there's an alternative and it's subtle, it's delicate, it's, it can take a little bit more time, but it can be really effective. And then he goes through this mesmerizing scene where, you know, he invokes memory and emotion and family. And, you know, it, it, the idea is it kind of associates a warmth with the brand that he's selling. When you bring up Chris Sununu's vibe, that's what it reminds me of. Because the fundamental insight, and I think the inflection point in American politics that Newt Gingrich had in the run-up to the 1994 takeover of the House, the, the Republican Revolution, was there is no longer a political upside in America to moderation in your language, in your communications. When I was a young staffer on Capitol Hill, fresh out of grad school, when I was introduced to the campaign world for the first time, I would sometimes make suggestions, kind of cheeky suggestions about things to say about our opponents. And there would always be some wise head in the room, someone with gray hair, like I now have. <laughs> and this person would say, kind of tisk me, you, know, you can't say that because it will boomerang. The voters will reject it. And what Newt Gingrich realized is that kind of thinking was outdated that really the job of politicians now was to maximize the attack, was to go as extreme as possible because you're just trying to break through the increasingly congested media sphere. And the people you're targeting are the not the, the people who are already with you. It's like the vast middle, they're only picking this up a little bit sometimes. So if you dilute your message, you're diluting the effectiveness of what you're trying to get across, which is activating hatred, loathing, distaste of the other fear. side. Yeah, and fear yeah. of the other side. And that brings me back to Don Draper because Newt Gingrich, his insight was correct. You've seen it. I mean, it was horrible. It's destroying America, but analytically in terms of effectiveness for your side, it was he wasn't wrong. And you've seen both parties, and I'm doing it here as a Democrat, you've seen both parties lean into that kind of approach in their messaging. What Chris Sununu tries to do, what some remaining politicians try to do is more of the Don Draper carousel method. It's slower, it's subtle, it's very delicate, but it can be very effective because there is a vast audience for that kind of thing. And yes, I think you're right. I think it, it works. He's one of the most popular governors in America. He's fundamentally untouchable politically inside the state. And it's because he's taken the time to cultivate this kind of a non-nasty, non-attack dog image, you know, and he's put some effort behind it. And it, it's a more and more rare pathway in American politics. Well, I certainly hope that is something that we can see as, you know, a future that it's latent, 
It has widespread appeal, longer term appeal. So one can only hope, right? Whichever side that you lean, whether it's center left, center right, you know, or somewhere in that general zone. Before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money, <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me, he knows my family, and I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team, all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. And now, back to our show. I want to back up for a second, though. So you grew up in the city, in, in Manhattan. What, for, first of all, what neighborhood were you in? I was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And, you know, every area of New York considers itself culturally superior to every other area of New York. And my area was no different. I, we consider ourselves the real, you know, like the best of New York. So how far, like up in the 70s, 80s, how far west? Duke Ellington Boulevard. I literally oh. grew up across the street from Duke Ellington's house. Oh, how um, about that? Also, one block south of a famous Civil War battle in which the uh, Civil War, sorry, the Revolutionary War, in which a Revolutionary War General Franz Siegel oh. is uh, memorialized with a statue at the end of my block, which is why I sometimes describe visitors to, to visitors how to find my house. It's right across from the horse's ass. That is staring down my block, 106th. You can find the street where I grew up. Just drive down and you're staring right into a horse's rear end. So, okay. So staring into the horse's rear end of, albeit a revolutionary war hero's horse. I'm reading Tina Wynn's book. I highly recommend in MAGA Diaries. And she describes growing up in Massachusetts. I, her mom was an academic got a graduate degree, PhD from Harvard. So they were in that in Cambridge. And she described growing up, seeing these historical markers and almost, and going to school with Kennedys and, you know, these kids that were legacies of American history and almost by osmosis, it's seeping into her interest. Mm. And so I'm curious, is, is that where the, the horse's ass of the Revolutionary War, is that where you developed an interest in civics and uh, politics and American history. Yes, it came right out of the. <laughs> when you think Matt Robeson, think horse's rear end. That's uh, believe me, plenty of people do. I'd say that what informed me later, and I didn't connect the dots until later, 
growing up was I was growing up in New York City in the early 80s. I grew up there during the heart of the crack epidemic. Mm. I attended New York City public schools. Mayor I, Koch, how am I doing? <laughs> Mayor Koch. I, I was raised politically in an environment where, you know, first of all, when I was in the public school system, I was one of the handful of white kids in the school. Mm. And my mother tutored some of my classmates and they were being failed by the school system. The, the schools were failing them. I had classmates in fourth grade who couldn't read and it brought them to tears with shame. And let me tell you, these are, these were smart kids. Yeah. The, you know, these were my friends. And when I later had to do an exercise, when I was at Harvard, when I was in, in grad school, thinking about making a campaign announcement as if I were running for Congress. And my, one of my mentors there, again, very much in the vibe of your show, one of my mentors in grad school was Mickey Edwards, who was a right-hand man to Newt Gingrich, about as conservative a Republican as you can find. Again, I'm a Democrat here, but you know, from a time where you could learn from people from the other party and respect them, and I did. And he had us do this exercise where we had to think about what is your connection to something that shaped you politically? And what I reached back to was if I were ever going to run for Congress, which I promise you I will not because my wife has threatened to cut a campaign ad against me because she does not want that. And some of my best friends in the political consulting world have offered to produce it. So this is never going to happen. But if I were to run for Congress, what I reached back to was I was going to stand and announce my campaign in front of that school and say, this is where the government, the system failed my friends, failed a generation of young black and Latino men and women. And I'm running to be in the government so that doesn't happen to the next generation. That was my formative political experience. When people ask me nowadays, you know, I'm not just a member of the Democratic Party the same way that people root for a sports team, you know, because yeah. I, I, I like the, the look of the colors of, of the shirt, you know, like I, I am because I identify with the core values that are still part of the Democratic Party that tell me that if we're failing kids like my friend Demel, who was one of the kids that my mom tutored, if we're failing them, then we're doing something wrong in America. And there's still a role for government to, to fix that. Yeah, that's definitely a point of connection for us. Both my parents worked for the New York City school system. My mother was a kindergarten teacher for about 35 years at Staten Island. My father was, for most of his career, he was a teacher at first. He was an administrator at, at one point. Most of his career he was a guidance counselor for inner city schools, in particular a vocational wow. technical school. And no, to your point, I think the good teachers, the good you know guidance counselors, the, the ones who were on the ground with relationships with the kids and the parents, they, they all could see it. They all could see specifically what was wrong with quote unquote, the system, but they all felt helpless in a way to do anything about it, you know? So that's a, maybe that's a whole other conversation that we should get into a whole other episode. But I was curious. So that that's when you started forming your political outlook to what degree, at, at what point did you decide uh, politics, uh, political campaigns, being a staffer? Was it Swarthmore that, that you kind of got clear, clear on that direction or was it even earlier than that? It was, it was later. 
I did have some seminal experiences at Swarthmore. I was in college during Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign for the presidency. I, I volunteered to go to a press conference. At the time, George H.W. Bush was running a lot of ads questioning Bill Clinton's military capabilities, his credentials. Was he tough and experienced enough? And so at this point in the campaign, this was October 1992, Clinton held a big press conference in Philadelphia with a lot of generals and admirals. And I volunteered to uh, be a driver, essentially. And I drove actually a guy named General Comfort, um, of all things, <laughs> uh, to the press conference. And a friend of mine who was a little bit more intrepid than I was after the press conference, you know, we helped set it up. We set up the flags and all that. And afterwards, we're kind of milling around and we're supposed to drive General Comfort back to the airport. And he's like, hey, let's go back to the green room to see if we can pick him up. And I'm like, we can't do that. And he's like, Let, let's just try it. What's the worst thing that happens? So we just walk right past the Secret Service guy. I guess I don't look threatening or anything, you know, <laughs> and, and we end up standing right outside the green room. And Bill Clinton is just kind of waxing on. He's losing his voice at this point in the campaign. He's talking about throat treatments or whatever. Yeah. Steps out. All of a sudden, I realize that I'm about three seconds from being face-to-face -face with the likely future president of the United States. I'd better shake his hand. So I'm 18 years old. I stick out my hand and I say, well, what I meant to say was, Governor, we're all with you, sir, or something, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And what comes out is, Governor, I... <laughs> but he was more than equal to it. And here's the thing about Bill Clinton. He pulls me in to one of those, like, it's like a half-hug bro shake that yeah. he does. And he like shakes your hand and he's a tall man. He's kind of a physically large man. And he has all of this physical presence and he looks into my eyes and he says, thanks buddy. And in that moment, he seemed so thankful. He seemed so genuinely appreciative of me. And I wanted to marry him on the spot. <laughs> I, I would have done anything for that man in that moment. So that was kind of a formative experience, but I didn't connect the dots back to politics until much later. I, I, Ended up by accident going to grad school. Someone I happened to be dating at the time was going. And I, she was like, why don't you apply here? I'm going here. And I was like, okay. And then I, you know, I got in and I broke the news to my mother that I'd gotten into a graduate school at, at Harvard. And I have a Jewish mother. So there was no way I was not following through on that at that point. Right. I wasn't going to take that away from her. And it was really only when I started working for former members of Congress and taking classes from them. And the, the former presidential advisor, David Gergen, was one of my mentors in grad oh. school. And I started rubbing shoulders with these people. And I was like, you know, I think this is, I think this is the direction for me. And in fact, I even did this before my wife put the kibosh on this. I did have a brief mental flirtation with, oh, maybe I'd run for office someday. And so I went to my mother and I said, hey, Ma, what if I ran for Congress? Would, would, would you be into that? What if I became a congressman? Which would be, which would be better from your standpoint? The fact that your son was a member of the U.S. Congress, one of only 10,000 individuals in American history to ever achieve that, or the fact that once upon a time I went to Harvard, my Jewish mother said, oh, Harvard clearly hard itself. <laughs> anyway, I, I eventually found my way onto the congressional staffer path. Well, you know, because it's all about what your mother can say at Shabbos, what, what she can say at shul, right? Right. Well, yes. You know, my son who's at Harvard. <laughs> yes, it, it did. My, Listen, my mother, you know, single mom raising me and my sister in New York City, working three jobs, you know, like there were some tough times. I felt like that was the least that I could give back to her. And now I'm giving her grandkids, so I'm doing great. Yeah, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. So 
there's so much there. There is so much there. I'm envisioning you and I collaborating on developing a sitcom about Jewish mothers and our lives and politics. And uh, so there's something there. I know there's something there. So I, I have a specific kind of in the weeds question. I was really, I, I really appreciated your latest piece in Newsweek. I know it wasn't your first, but it was so, it was such a thought provoking piece for me because it made me reconsider a lot of the stories that I'm watching. Even some of my favorite analysts will are prone to buy into a prevailing media narrative. So as someone who studies both psychology and economics, oh, excuse me, wait, let me back up for a second. I'm wanted first, before I get into that, I, I'm curious if you could, well, if you could lay out the premise of your article, let's just table set first before I start getting into the weeds a little bit. Sure. This, I wrote this right after the Iowa call, and my point was, that the media had, I don't know if I, I, I can't remember if the editors put in the clickbaitier title, like epic fail for the media or something like that. Yeah. 10 ways that you can lose weight and discover that the media is failing. My, my basic contention was that there was a herd mentality and I ran down all of the major news outlets and what their headlines were and the, the adjectives they used to describe Trump's victory, romp, crushing defeat, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let's interrogate this a little bit. Let's just apply a little bit of critical thinking to it. The man got half, half the vote, and only 8% of registered Republicans in Iowa bothered to show up. And don't give me this blarney about, oh, it was cold. Really, there are 1,600 caucus sites in Iowa, okay? If you go to an Iowa caucus site, you're rolling down the street in your minivan to your neighbor's basement. like. You know, that's that's not a barrier here. 8% were motivated to show up and he got half of them. So he got 4%. And underneath that, you had entrance polling indicating that one third, one third of the people who showed up would not consider Trump fit to serve as president if he were convicted in any of the cases pending against him. Now, I then deconstructed the sentence that the that ABC News, the outlet that conducted the poll, used to describe it. And they flipped it on its head. They said, well, you know, 68% right. say yeah. that he would be fit. My point is that this is what I find interesting in the writing I do in, in on the Beyond Politics podcast is just looking under the hood a little bit, trying to ask a little bit further, well, wait a second, like, I know it's very easy to have chat GPT write your headline these days yeah. and to kind of, I don't want to be too negative about this, but to sort of vomit out the, the top line of thought. But what if we just think a little bit further about this and see what might really be going on a click under the surface? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it was, it's a smart way, even if I didn't know you and hadn't read your bio, I would suspect that you're someone who worked on campaigns as well as policy and had access to not just the top line numbers, but really studied the crosstabs and tried to associate reasoning behind it. It really does make one wonder. At this recording, we have seen what's happened in Iowa and New Hampshire and the primaries. So if you compare your premise to what happened in New Hampshire, 
Biden wasn't even on the ballot in the Democratic primary. And yet he won by 705 Eastern. You know, he, he won in, in a landslide. He wasn't even on the ballot. And yet here we're talking about, you know, same, same types of, of descriptors for Trump's uh, victory. He won by all of 11 points, you know, but he's essentially, you know, the, what do you call it? The president, the incumbent. He's essentially the incumbent. And wouldn't the story be that the incumbent lost about 40% of the most hardcore voters of his own party? Wouldn't that be the story? Biden show, Biden's returns in New Hampshire certainly were a better, you know, a better showing, we could say. The other thing is, if you look at what actually won the race for Biden in 2020, some of the smartest analysts and numbers guys, I, I was mentioning to you before we got on the air, someone I've become friendly with, a guy named Mike Madrid, his magic number was what he called the Bannon line. They determined that if they could persuade 5% plus or minus of Republican voters to either sit out the race or preferably vote for Biden, because voting for Biden is a plus two instead of just a plus one, in key states, they, they identified four. I, I think they identified the four that everybody was talking about, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. They expanded it a little bit when they had some room to get into Michigan and uh, Minnesota and Nevada. But really, it was those four, first four states. And I think they ended up getting about 10 to 12 percent of and it was suburban college educated Republican voting women that ultimately voted for Biden, in particular in those four states. And arguably that won the election for Biden. Now, according to your numbers, you say about a third of Republican voters that have come out said they would absolutely not vote for Trump if he was convicted. I'm curious about a more specific question, and I've only seen it in maybe one or two decent polls, which is uh, of Nikki voters who would absolutely not vote for Trump, regardless of what the reasoning is, who would just absolutely not vote for Trump of Nikki voters. And I'm seeing numbers upwards of 20%. Now, and now I'm getting really geeky here. And I'm just an amateur numbers guy, but this is what I'm seeing and what I'm learning from really some smart analysts is if you're looking at 20%, even if you're accounting for some of the leakage that Mike's also talking, Madrid is also talking about how uh, he's done a lot of work on Latino voters and how the Democratic Party has been leaking Democratic numbers, uh, numbers to Latino voters in particular over the last few cycles. Even if you account for that, 20% is a pretty big number. So it's, I don't know, for folks who are not big fans of Trump, anybody who knows me, I'm not a big fan, and rooting against his second administration of his, then I don't know, that looks like, what do you think? Is that, am I being too rose-colored glasses or am I on the right track? I think you're, I think you're deeply on the right track. And my core point in the article was to also raise the issue that we're engaged in parallel conversations politically in this country. There's a conversation happening among, let's just call the political elites, what in the trade we call high information voters, the kinds of people who, look, if you've read the New York Times, just for all of our listeners here, if you've read the New York Times in the last month, you are in the 0.1 percentile of high information voters. Most people don't do this. I have a, a, a friend, a former colleague, who is a very high level campaign consultant, who only reads USA Today and local papers because he wants to experience the news 
the way most Americans experience the news. One of the smartest people I ever worked with on Capitol Hill, he was Rahm Emanuel's right-hand man. He actually oh. has a great podcast himself. It's called Staffer. You know, he once said on, on my show, on Beyond Politics, that, that you have to realize the fundamental insight is that most people are only getting all these issues we talk about, they're only getting it a little bit yeah. sometimes right. in between going to the grocery store and getting the kids to soccer practice and going to work and living their lives. And so what you're speaking to with this 20% is people take their cues from signals that they see. They use what Daniel Kahneman, the, the inventor of behavioral economics, the psychologist, you know, calls heuristics, these signals, these simplifying signals. Nowadays, the most simplifying signal for most people is D or R. Are you a Democrat or Republican? That's, a, that's a, the easy mental shortcut to boil things down. And you don't have to interrogate things much further for most people because they're pretty partisan. What I was trying to argue in Newsweek, and frankly, what I'm trying to argue overall on Beyond Politics is, you know, we have a responsibility, all of us who are kind of in the cloud of the media, to present people with that kind of more thoughtful information, with some critical thinking, because they are taking their cues. They're looking for mental shortcuts to decide how to vote and how to think about really complex, nuanced issues that they don't have time in their lives to think about. Voters are intelligent people. I'm not demeaning people who are low information voters. I'm saying that they have different priorities in their lives and they're applying their considerable intellects to, to other things. And so I think it matters that the way things like the Iowa caucus or the New Hampshire primary are covered, I think the media narrative matters and I think it changes people's behavior. And so when you cite a number like 20% or your friend Mike Madrid's citing, oh, you know, Latino voters, the Democratic Party is bleeding them a little bit. You have to ask yourself why. And you have to ask yourself what kinds of signals and cues are they getting? And how can we, you know, how can we help add a little bit of useful information to nudge those signals and cues back to a place where people can make smart decisions from them? Yeah, I think what I hear you saying is that a lot of politics, a lot of campaigning in particular, really isn't, a, a lot of folks get frustrated because they want to snap their fingers and have the perfect slogan or the perfect rhetorical punch to, to, to deliver to their supposed opponent, and then everything will change. The entire race will change. But I think what I hear you saying is that it doesn't work that way. It's really trench warfare. You're fighting for, you know, a foot here, a foot there. You know, maybe in a, on a great day, you'll get a tenth of a mile, you know, and move the lines just a little bit. What Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, just to underscore that, research shows that you need repetition. Repetition is so critical of any political message. 14 to 17 times before it even starts to register in people's brains. When I, one of my first bosses on Capitol Hill, this guy, Mike Michaud, an amazing guy, 28 years as a mill worker, never went to college, very smart man, just never went to college, became a member of Congress in the 2000 election. And one of the things that they did in that campaign was they ran on his, this identity as he's a mill worker. And his slogan was one of us working for us. They did focus groups and they knew that their message was breaking through. 
when people in the focus groups would organically say stuff like, you know, he just feels like he's kind of one of us, like, like, and he wants to go, you know, work for us. And, you know, and it's because they repeated, you know, that's what you get time for in politics. And it's, it's rough. That's what I was referring to earlier with the kind of the Newt Gingrich insight of, look, you get very little time in people's brains. There was a study, I had Ian Smith of Navigator Research, he's a pollster on Beyond Politics a couple months back. He did a study that most people spend 10 minutes a week thinking about the news or, or politics or current affairs, 10 minutes a week. Mm. You get a vanishingly small amount of brain space. And so Newt Gingrich's insight was, you know what? Don't dilute any of it. You've got to just repeat the most extreme thing possible. It's like if you want to, if you want to heat the pan up, you you <laughs> got to pour on the heat with with all the shots you got. And you know, like that makes sense. It, it makes sense. But that's not what you want to do on your podcast. No. That's not what I want to do on my podcast either. And what I'm trying to do through podcasting and on the video channel I, I have called Blue Amp on YouTube and in my, and you know in my writing is to try to provide a little bit more of that nuance. So it's not all just the bam, throw on the heat. Yeah, so one more in the weeds question while we're uh, down this rabbit hole and, and then the TPNR question. So this is what I was gonna ask before. As somebody who studies the way both psychology and economics impact politics, how do we explain Biden's lack of support even among moderates on the economy through his first three years? I think you're already describing some of the reasons behind that. But as, as I did a whole edition on the actual numbers, the numbers are all either, sorry, that's Charles Mingus the third. He always wants to participate. He says, no, no, I got something to say. So all the indicators- You got a are, bebop dog, I like it. <laughs> that's right. Good, that's, yeah, okay. I guess if you grew up across the street from Duke, the Duke's house, then you would know Charles Mingus, of course. So I had a jazz radio program in college. That's, that's what kind of a nerd I am. That, oh, talk man. about formative experiences. Anyway, go on. So, I mean, if we're looking at it objectively, all the numbers are strong. If, you know, all the major macroeconomics are either strong or at least improving in the case of inflation, is there time to turn it around? And if so, how does Biden's team do that? So this is, we could spend the rest of, we're gonna make this a two-part episode, right? <laughs> we're gonna do half of this in your feed, yeah. half of this in my feed, and, you and I could talk about just this question. We could unpack just this question. This would be like, you know, this would be like the, the Mishnah. We could do it a, a, a Talmudic analysis on this question for the next hour. I barely scratched the surface. I think the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov once wrote an essay called Lost in Non-Translation about how when you translate from one language to another, you, you really miss critical nuance. And, you know, he told the story of Ruth from the Bible. And he said, look, what's lost is the difference in the tribes in that story. And when Ruth says, you know, I will follow, now I'm getting into, we're talking religion. We're getting we into talking the turf, you. man. You, yeah. you know, his point was, you have to think about the divide in that story. Think about Ruth as black and the rest of the people in the story as white. That's the kind of societal divide. And you miss that because you miss the cultural context that you're dealing with in the story. It's what you're missing in non-translation. I contend that the same thing is true when it comes to public opinion polling 
that there is a lot that is lost in non-translation. The translation comes between the kinds of terms, the language that political professionals use and what actual humans use. And that's a Venn diagram that has a very slim overlap, right? Political professionals, actual humans. <laughs> well, one of the criticisms that I have of questions like approval rating for the president, how do you feel about the economy, is that you're asking people either binary questions, approve, disapprove, or you're asking them questions that make sense in your terms as a political elitist, but don't make sense in the same terms to real humans. Think back to the debate in 1992, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and it was the second debate, and it was the one where they let audience members ask questions. Yeah. And the woman stands up. And she says to George H.W. Bush, how has the deficit affected you personally? And then he got wonky. And he got wonky. Yeah. And he missed it. What was right. lost in non-translation was that to this woman who, look, you know, she knew she, she was going to get to ask a question. She thought about it in advance. But it was just that to her, the deficit didn't mean the deficit. She could not have given two whatever comes out of the horse's rear end at the end of my street about the deficit, she meant the recession. Yeah. She meant yeah. the economy. Right. And so we're not even speaking in the same terms. It's not a lack of intelligence or education on the part of this person or, or anyone else that, that's responding to these polls. And so when people tell pollsters, which they are, that they view the current economy as worse than it was at the height of the Great Recession in 2008, what are they saying? Well, we have to really, we have to think about that. We have to unpack that. What they're saying is they don't like that the relative prices are, are a lot higher. That's having a real impact on their lives. They're, they don't like the level of insecurity and economic upheaval that they've experienced in the last few years. And they don't like the news that they're reading. They, people are talking about a vibes session. They don't like the vibes. Where does that come from? It comes from the media. But as you say, all of the measurables that economists talk about. I was with the economist Mark Zandi on his program, Inside Economics, as a guest a few months ago. And we were talking about this, like all the terms that Mark Zandi would use, you know, the economy is doing absolutely gangbusters. It's an economic miracle what we're going through right now. But that's not what people are feeling. And I'll just close out this. Like I said, I could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> I'll just close out by saying that I very much think the same thing is true when it comes to Biden approval. When you ask people, do you approve? And they say, no, what are they saying? What's lost in non-translation there? If you could get people to describe in their own terms, what are you feeling? I think often what they're feeling is I am unhappy. And it's like, if you've ever, you have kids, right? Like when you yeah. have a baby, one of the insights that new parents have to go through is when the baby cries, that's their way of communicating. They have basically an on off switch. They, they don't have a lot of options here. And when people get, the option to tell pollsters disapprove, that is covering a pretty vast waterfront of things that could be making them unhappy. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean that they disapprove of Joe Biden, quad Joe Biden, or that they would vote against him and, and choose Donald Trump over him. What it means is there are things I don't like. And many of those respondents are Democrats who are likely trying to say, hey, we don't like how Joe Biden has acted on the war between Israel and Hamas. 
We don't like some of the language he's used on X. We don't like how nasty the news is. We don't, there's a long list of things that make people unhappy. The median proportion of Americans who answer Gallup pollsters and say that the country is on the wrong track is 71% over the last decade, 71%. Yeah. So there's a lot that's making Americans unhappy and they get to reflect it to pollsters a little bit in dribs and drabs. So that's my way of saying, I don't get too hung up on the approval number. I know it's significant. It's saying something, it's not great, yeah. but I don't get too hung up on that number. And I question what people are telling pollsters when they give such negative marks to the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Having infants, it, it's not easy, but it could be simple most of the time because if the baby's crying, there's basically three options, hungry right. baby, tired baby, poopy diaper. So I think we could probably win a lot of campaigns if we could just figure out hungry baby, tired baby, poopy diaper and address those needs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, I have an idea for you here. Yeah. I think we should do this live as part of our, we said we were going to break this up into two yeah. parts. You've gotten us into the weeds. You've okay. gotten to question me. I think we should break up the show right here. I think we should just launch right into part two, put okay. that over in my feed, and yeah. I'm going to turn the tables on you, and okay. I'm going to find out what horse's ass is staring down your block. <laughs> oh, man. There's a lot there, man. There is all a right. Lot. All right. It's a so big here we target. Go. We're, we're going to close this out. And we do have to get to the TPNR question, though. We do, gotta, right. we do have to do that either way, and we can both answer it if you like. All right. So that was fun, but it was only half of it, literally. <laughs> so we had a great conversation and we continued it over on Matt's podcast. Really easy to find his podcast. It's really engaging, really smart, comes from a place of experience and is tackling a lot of the same. It's not, it's not that they're tackling a lot of the same issues. Of course, we're all engaged in what's going on on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, we're engaged in politics, right? But they're doing it specifically in such a way that I think is important to go beyond the punditry, to dig deeper into what's really driving our politics, our elections, our campaigns, uh, and how to get issues from ideas and punditry to actual legislation. Uh, they really know what they're talking about. Great podcast. Uh, really enjoyed getting to know Matt and really appreciate what they're doing on Beyond Politics. So again, easiest way to find him is beyondpoliticspodcast.com. That's www.beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, definitely subscribe, rate, review, especially review, especially on Apple Podcasts. We could really use your help there. Uh, and tell a friend. Tell a friend to listen in on what we're doing, having great conversations like these. Uh, we're adding that second episode on a weekly basis uh, that some folks have been responding to, some very favorable, some not so much, which is okay. That's part of the uh, part of the gig, you know, figuring out how to have better conversations across our differences and still being able to leave room to have our opinions uh, and to form intelligent opinions. So. Easiest way to find us is politicsandreligion.us. That's www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E. S is in Sam. N-A-T-H-A-N at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. 
and then go over to Beyond Politics to listen to the rest of this conversation and have a great week. <laughs>